You're listening to a message from Highway Church entitled, Built Jesus Tough, Part 9. Enjoy. Are you ready to take God at His Word? This is just as much worship as singing, as praying. It's God's Word and His Spirit. That's His method for transforming us. Through His Word and His Spirit, Psalm 107, verse 20 says, He sent His Word and He healed them and delivered them from destructions. So let's trust in him right now. Father, we come before you acknowledging that apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, we can do all things. We thank you for transforming us this morning by your spirit and through your word. That we're leaving here today with a clearer understanding of who you are. That by your grace, we're leaving here today stronger than when we came in. Healthier than when we came in closer to you than when we came in. We thank you for your will, abundant life, done in our lives, just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Are you ready? You've got your religious glasses on? If so, please remove them at this time. Okay, same thing with the religious headphones. You can leave those at the door. We're here to know him. We're continuing in our series, Built Jesus tough. And we're talking about a life built on the promises of God is a life built Jesus tough. This is not an automatic thing if you become a Christian. Just putting your faith in Jesus Christ to go to heaven does not automatically cause God's will to happen in your life. So a person can come to, to God and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of their sins. And that's, that's a, 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 probably the greatest miracle of all is that our dead spirit that's, that was forever polluted with sin could be immediately washed clean and made new through simple faith in Christ. But knowing him, eternal life is more than just going to heaven. In fact, Jesus defined eternal life for us. Where did he define eternal life? You guys remember? John chapter 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they might know you. Right? And that word know is a Jewish idiom that speaks of the way in which a husband knows his wife. This is eternal life, that they may know you that they may come into union with you. If you're in union with him, of course you're going to heaven. Man's religious uh, understanding of things has turned Christianity all about going to heaven someday. But God has a purpose for you today. Right? Someday, we don't know when someday is. We do know when today is. It's now. He's, a, he's a, the God of now. He's I am. Isn't that wonderful? I love how he, he reveals himself to us. I am who I am. So being built Jesus tough is about knowing I am who I am, the God who is, who was and ever shall be. It's about making decisions based on who he is, not on what other people are doing, not on what I've been through, not on how I feel, but on who he is. And when you begin to make your daily decisions on who he is, life changes. And that's really, uh, that's really when life begins. So we said there are two steps to being built Jesus tough. Number one is making a decision that your relationship with God is the passion of your life. 
making God the Father your all in all. And only you can make that decision. In other words, you get up in the morning because you want to know him more. Right? Isn't that what our memory scripture said, Philippians 3.10 in the Amplified? Our determined purpose is to know him, to progressively become more intimately and deeply uh, acquainted with him, experiencing the wonders of his person. And then the second step is to begin to build your life on his promises. His promises reveal his will to us. His promises reveal his heart. I like it in 2 Peter chapter 1, in the, uh, it tells us that his promises, through his promises, we participate in his nature. I think it's the message of the New Living Translation, speaking of his promises, say they are your tickets to participation in the life of God. So you begin to build your life on his promises. We're not going to review uh, much today. We want to continue where we were last week. So in this series, we've gone through God's promises regarding the whole person of you, your spirit, your soul, and your body. Last week, we started with your body. And through God's promises, we see that it's his will for us to be whole, that God has provided wholeness for us through Jesus Christ. Now, I came across a quote this week that I really like from Jack Hayford in an e-devotional. Uh, if you don't know who Jack is, Jack Hayford, I don't know who, he's been a pastor probably for 50 years, I don't know, but he was the, uh, the one who edited and published the Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible, which is a great reference for Bible study. But I came across a, across, across a quote, I came across a quote this week, and he was talking about fullness, and it had to, it's re- relevant to what we're, we're talking about, and I want to read it to you. He said, the passion for fullness is not a search for some sensuous spiritual sensation. It's a quest for God himself. It's a return to the fountain of our being. That the fullness of his purpose for us in Christ might be realized. So people might say, why are you talking about healing so much? I mean, why don't you just get over it and live with it, you know? And, and because we want to know him. We're not afraid of sickness. What's the worst thing that could happen to us? Our mortal body stops working, right? Then we're home, right? We're not afraid of sickness and death. But we want to know him as he is. Remember our determined purpose? Is to know him, to experience more and more the wonders of his person. So it's really not about us being healthy. It's about us knowing him. Our focus is not to be healed. Our focus is to experience him, and he's the healer, okay? It's important to keep that uh, focus in mind. And when you know him as he is and you look at the ministry of Christ, you see sickness and disease are enemies of God. Death is an enemy of God. It's contrary to who he is. So we're talking about your body now. Are you guys ready? We're going to get in some fun stuff. We're going to dismantle some religious thinking, okay? So it can clear the way for you to believe God. All right? We're going to remove some roadblocks this morning. We talked about an obstacle last week, and to my knowledge, it's probably the greatest obstacle that I've seen that gets in the way of people experiencing the supernatural healing that God has provided for them and that is available through simple faith in his word. 
And that obstacle is a, is a gross misunderstanding of the sovereignty and will of God. What's taught so much is that God's sovereignty and God's will automatically happen in our lives. And that everything that happens is a part of God's will. So I hear so many people praying for someone who might be battling a sickness, and they'll say, if it be your will, oh God, right, heal this person. But just because someone's praying doesn't mean it's effective or working, right? We need to pray in line with his will, with who he is, all right? We're going to look at Jesus. Is it okay to look at Jesus this morning? Because we love him, don't we? Let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. We looked at it last week. Let's, let's take another look. We want to pray in line with the will of God. Those are the prayers that are powerful, right? You know, all kinds of people pray, right? Are you seeing results in your prayers that line up with who he is and what he's done for us? 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence... It's the assurance, the certainty we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if I pray, God, make me the New England Patriots starting quarterback, I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. That's not his plan for me, right? You, You know, pray according to his will, right? Anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know... We're sure and certain, we have confidence that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know. There's three times, confidence, no, and no. Sure and certain, we know, we're confident, we're sure, we're certain that we have what we asked of him. Listen closely. The will of God was never meant to be an unknown, mysterious, faraway covered up on some hilltop, you can't get to unattainable thing. Never meant to be. Religion has made it that. Satan has tried to make it that. But God has revealed his will for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Are you familiar with Deuteronomy 29, 29? Let's put that up there. Look at this. Because when you talk about healing, sometimes people think you're being presumptuous or arrogant. And they don't understand that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Amen. There are many things we'll never know about God. Right? We're not talking about knowing the fullness of God. Right? We're just talking about health in our bodies. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But look at this. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What has God revealed through the ministry of Christ? Healing is one of the things, many things. But through the ministry of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the body now, the will for your physical body has been revealed. It's his will for your body to be whole. You won't find one place in the entire ministry of Christ where he made anyone sick. Not one. You won't find one place where he told a person who was battling with sickness that it's God's will for you to be that way. Not one. The will of God's been revealed regarding your health and its wholeness. All right? So what God has revealed to us, it is not presumptuous of us to grab a hold of it. It pleases God. It pleases me as a dad when my children enjoy what's been provided for them. 
I don't get offended by that. It makes me smile. That's what I want to happen. Right? Without faith, without confidence, without certainty, it's impossible to please him. So in this, this first John verse, the key to being confident is knowing his will. The key to being confident regarding your health is knowing his will concerning your health. And this is where the enemy is having a field day with so many. He's trying to confuse them regarding health. So let's, let's, let's go right to Jesus. Let's not mess around here. Let's go right to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Don't put it up there yet. Let me see here. I don't want to skip something. I don't want to skip this. Let me see. I'm just thinking if we can fit all this in. I think we can. All right, we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it. So we go right to Jesus. And we said last week that Jesus taught us to pray for God's will to be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. In heaven, there's no interference with God's will. Zero. He says it, it's done. On earth, there is. There's opposition to the will of God here. Jesus said Satan is the ruler of this world. There's resistance to the will of God here. So he instructed us to pray for it to be done because it's not done automatically. We have to exercise the authority Christ has given us, and we do that with our mouth and with our heart. We speak with our mouth, and we believe in our heart, okay? Now, we're going to look at something. We're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to see if the will of God automatically happened in Jesus' life. Most people would say it did, but it didn't. All right, let's go to Mark chapter 4. I mean, he's God in the flesh. He is the will of God, right? You would think everything would have just went smooth for him. Mark chapter 4. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4, not 5. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. This is, this is the sovereignty of God in action, okay? Jesus in the flesh. The same day when even was come, this is Jesus, Jesus says unto his disciples, let us pass over unto the other side. Now, Jesus told us, if you read through the scriptures, that everything he did, he did because his father directed him to do it, right? He said, everything I say and everything I do, I do because the father has told me to. So God the Father has just told his son, I want you to go from where you are on this shore across the water to the other shore. That's God's will for him and for his disciples, right? Easy to see that. Jesus saying, we need to go from here across the water over there. God's talking, so that's God's will. It should automatically happen, right? Wrong. Wrong, okay? So, verse 36 and when they had sent away the multitude, Jesus had been ministering to thousands of people, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. Some commentators say that it was of hurricane proportions, a strong storm. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. So, you know, if you've ever been on water and your ship's full of water, this is a bad thing, right? What starts to happen? You start to go down, the water comes up, right? Verse 38, and Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Why was he sleeping? He was tired. Yeah, he was in the flesh. He was tired. He'd been ministering to thousands of people, right? And he's asleep in the midst of this storm. And they awoke him 
and said unto him, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Have you ever had a feeling like that? I venture to say most of us have. God, don't you care about what's happening? Did God care? Listen, if you ever have a feeling or thought like that again, shut that thing down immediately. How, I, I can tell you right now God cares for you. How can I tell you that? Because he gave his son for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously, freely give us all things? Right? So God cares for you. Don't listen to those thoughts. Don't allow that feeling to grow. You shut that thing down and remind yourself of what he's done for you in Christ. Right? Okay, so they say, don't you care for us? Now, I want you to notice God in the flesh, how he behaves. This is God's will. He rises from a sleep, and he had to be sleeping heavy. He's in the middle of a, a boat sinking, you know, and you had to, you had, the wind must have been noisy, and he's sound asleep. They wake him out of this sound sleep, right? And notice what he does without hesitation. He doesn't look up and, and look around and say, oh, man. He said, guys, listen. I don't understand this. You know, there must be, God must have some purpose behind this storm. He, there, he must have some purpose for sinking us at sea, right? You know, this, maybe this is our time. He doesn't say any of those things. What was God's will for them? Do you remember? To go to the other side. Why? Because God had things for them to do there. His ministry was not done yet. It wasn't his time. There are numerous times in the ministry of Jesus where his life, people tried to take his life from him, right? Even when he was a baby, it wasn't his time yet. So he gets up without hesitation. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, what's going on? God, help us. What are we doing? He gets up and he speaks to the storm. He rebukes the wind. He doesn't say a word to his father. You've got to know the will of God to, to act like this. If you don't know the will of God, you're going to be spinning in this situation. You've got to know the will of God before the storm comes. How are you going to build a foundation for a house when it's storming? The time to lay your foundation is when the sun is up. It's time to know him now, not when the storm comes. In the storm, you've got to know him and you've got to act. So he steps up from a deep sleep without hesitation. He rebukes the wind. He says to the sea, he's speaking to wind and water. He spoke to a fig tree, didn't he? He said, peace, be still. Back to a Nova episode. I don't know if it was just Judah and I, we were watching a Nova episode. Let's pause here for a moment. And it was on quantum mechanics. Very fascinating. But quantum mechanics kind of shook the world of physics, of Newtonian physics, because it defied what classical physicists knew. But nevertheless, quantum physics has been proven in every single experiment that's ever been done on it. And quantum physics is what's responsible for stuff like this. But one of the things they began to discover about quantum physics that rattled Einstein was that matter responds to the observer. They found that matter, these subatomic particles, were sometimes in a wave state, 
but when they tried to observe them, they'd come together almost like they're coming together in attention, waiting to see what that person would do. You study the ministry of Jesus and you see this matter responds to your faith. He spoke to things. This is not a new age philosophy. It's not a cult belief. It's simple Bible. Jesus is speaking to wind and he's speaking to sea. And it responds to him because he knows the will of God in his life. Matter will, situations will respond to you when you're confident in the Father's purpose for your life. If you're not, it won't. Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so fearful? Why didn't you do this? How is it that you have no faith? And Luke, he says, where is your faith? I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the years Christians attributing the weather to God. I think how ignorant. Do you know God's not controlling the weather? There are three places in the Bible you can see clearly the will of God. One is in the garden before sin. God made it a paradise. It didn't even rain in the Garden of Eden. Not only were there no storms, it didn't rain. Mist came up from the ground. I mean, how, how wonderful is that? Yeah, in-ground sprinkler system, right? Irrigation. That's God's will. When the curse of sin came upon the earth, everything changed. This earth, although it's quote-unquote beautiful, it's not even close to what God designed it to be. It's been deteriorating for thousands of years, right? We're getting a new heaven and a new earth. So tornadoes, in fact, this thinking of God controlling the weather has become so ingrained in our society that you will read contracts of insurance companies and they will refer to tornadoes and hurricanes and natural disasters as quote-unquote acts of God. Jesus didn't teach that. He rebuked storms without hesitation. Can I tell you a little example from my life? You ever rebuked a hurricane? Well, I have. I've rebuked, when I read this 27 years ago, this changed my life. I began to speak to things, and I saw results. Well, many years ago, I was teaching a chapel class at a private school for 7th and 8th graders. And it just so happened on that day that the, the warning came in, there was an eminent a touchdown of a hurricane. I don't remember what the name of it was. So they were, they were ending school early, sending everyone home for emergency preparations. And here I am in this chapel class with 7th and 8th graders. And I said, you know what we're going to do, guys? We read Mark chapter 4. And I said, we're going to rebuke that hurricane. We're going to tell it to go out to the sea and to die. And it was looking bad out. You know, they, the, all the emergency things were, were being put in place. They're sending kids home. So I stood there in front of this kid. I said, Hurricane, whatever its name was, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to go out to sea, and I command you to die there. And we ended chapel class, and everyone did dismissed and went home. Well, you know what happened? That hurricane changed course. Guess where it went? Out to sea. And you know, we got a little bit of rain. I've seen this in my life on multiple occasions. If there's something interfering with the will of, my, will of God in my life, I speak to it. I command it to submit to the will of God. God is good. Hallelujah. Now listen, you remember when they accused Jesus 
of doing what he did by the power of Satan? Do you guys remember that in his ministry? They say, you're doing what you did, Jesus, uh, by the power of Beelzebub. You guys remember that? And what did Jesus say to them? He said, if I'm doing what I've done by the power of Satan, then his kingdom is divided. But if I'm doing what I'm doing by the power of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So think about that for a second in this situation. If Jesus is rebuking the storm and God was causing the storm, what did Jesus do? He rebuked his father. Right? You know he didn't do that. God's kingdom is not divided. Jesus walked in perfect obedience to his father. He never rebuked him. Right? So you've got to, you've got to apply the word, you know, the ministry of Christ to your thinking to see things clearly. Hallelujah. All right, let's go on. Let's, what, see, look what happens when we exalt the ministry of Jesus. Look what happens when we study the ministry of Christ. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we respond to difficult situations. People would think you've lost it if you stood up and talked to the weather, right? But let's look at Jesus some more. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. It's my favorite thing to do is to look at Jesus. He changes me when I behold him. Matthew chapter 7. Now, are you ready for this? It gets better. But when we lift up Jesus in our thinking, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, not, not someone else's version of Jesus, when we lift him up, we begin to develop a very keen sense of the difference between God and the devil. It becomes very clear to us what is of God and what is not of God. And Jesus couldn't have made it more simple or more clear. Now, I'm going to read you something that's straight from Jesus' mouth. It's so simple. A child knows this, but many theologians don't. So we're going to read it. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. This is God's sovereignty speaking. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. One plus one equals two. Simple, right? For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Verse number nine. Are you ready? Couldn't get simpler than this. If we try and complicate this, we're getting away from the heart of God. Verse nine. Jesus talking, will of God, here we go. What man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Anyone here? Raise your hand. Yo, that's me. Of course not. That's ridiculous, right? That's, that's insane. Verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Anyone do that? No. What would happen if a parent did that? Time to lock them up, right? Not qualified to be a parent. Something's really, really wrong with that. Verse 11. Well then, if you, being evil, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let me ask you a question. Don't religify it. Is sickness a good thing? 
No. Every time, no. There's nothing good about it. So if I, as a parent, made my child sick to teach them something, would I be a good parent? Come on, just be real. Then why are ministers accusing God of the same thing? Telling people that God made them sick to humble them. That God uses sickness to teach and humble them. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. By esteemed leaders in the church. Can you imagine if a parent did that? That's a criminal act. Didn't Jesus just make that analogy? Come on, am I making this up or is this really simple? Right? If your son comes to you, asks for bread, you give him a stone or a serpent, would you do that? No. How much more? Your Father in heaven would give good things to those who ask him. Okay, so we're going to get into the biggie. Are you ready? So this, this idea of God's sovereignty, what comes along right with it is God uses sickness to teach us things. Nothing true about that, but it's very popular, all right? And then, and I, and I say, well, no, he doesn't. And people say, well, what about Paul's thorn? God humbled Paul by making him sick, giving him a sickness. I thought, where did they hear that? It's not in the Bible. It's not. You can't find it in the Scriptures. Do you know that, let's put uh, Mark 7 up there. Mark 7, 13. Remember when Jesus said, you make the word of God of no effect through your tradition? So if someone told me, you know, God humbled Paul by making him sick, sickness comes my way, and this, well, okay, maybe I need to be humbled, right? Maybe God's using this to teach me something, right? All of a sudden, there's a belief inside of me that becomes a roadblock, and it blocks the healing flow that God wants to to provide and, and operate in my life. It makes the Word of God of no effect. It's not that it's not his will to heal me, but his word is what heals me. Faith in his word. If I believe that it's his will for me to be sick, guess what? I'm not going to receive the healing he's provided for me. So I've got to take off my religious glasses. I've got to take off my religious headphones, and I've got to let God be God. Let's do that. Let's go in the scriptures of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at the passages that people use to justify this false argument about Paul's thorn. All right? So good to know Jesus. We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 1. And before we start reading, remember what we said last week. The Bible must be interpreted through the person and ministry of Christ. That includes the Old Testament. It includes the epistles of the New Testament. Let me say this. The Bible is a perfect book written by imperfect people. What do I mean by that? The Bible is the inspired Word of God, but it was written by people. What do people have? Personalities, attitudes, figures of speech, a sense of humor. And you see that in the Bible. When you read the Bible, if you read it rigid and stiff and afraid, you're going to misunderstand it. For example, Jesus said, uh, why do you look at the speck? in your brother's eye, and ignore the plank in your own eye. Did he mean there was a two-by-six sticking out of that person's eye? He's being That's, a, that's a, a figure of speech. That's funny. Isn't that funny? You got a plank in your eye. <laughs> right? He's using a figure of speech, but boy, it gets the point across. Right? There's not a two-by-six sticking out of my eye. He's saying I need to pay attention to the issue in my life. Right? 
So let's read this. And one thing you'll notice about Paul, if you're familiar with his writings, he's sarcastic, part of his personality. God didn't make robots. You know, life is not lived in complete sentences, perfect grammatical sentences. I love what Alan shared with me a few weeks ago after uh, service. It's so good before we read this. He was talking to me about the difference between appeal lawyers and trial lawyers. And he was saying the appeal lawyers often get mad at the trial lawyers because the appeal lawyers have to read the transcript of the trial. And one of them was saying to Alan, you don't talk in complete sentences. And Alan said something like this, well, listen, you weren't in the room. You didn't hear the inflection in my voice. You didn't feel the emotion and what was going on in the moment. The Bible's written by real people going through real stuff, and their personality comes out. Okay? So here's sarcastic. Paul's even facetious sometimes. Let's read. All right. Very first verse. He's a funny guy. Here we go. Verse 1 of 11. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. <laughs> you can lighten up when you read the Bible. You know, it's okay to laugh. It's, in fact, you probably understand it better if you lighten up. I, I know that to be true. Bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, oh, here's, a, here's one right here, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. We just read it in Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11, right? The simplicity that is in Christ. God is good, devil is bad. Right? The simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached... That's why we use Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts as our standard, not our own ideas, right? Preaches another Jesus who we've not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which we, you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. You might have a translation that says to the super apostles. He's being kind of sarcastic there, isn't he, right? Now, for time's sake, verses 6 through 22, he begins, Paul begins comparing himself to these super apostles, right? And then he begins describing his conduct as evidence of his calling. And then you go into verses 23 through 29, and he begins to list the persecutions that he's gone through for preaching the simplicity of Christ. All right? Let's read those. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. <laughs> I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, beaten so many times I count, can't, can't count anymore. Wow. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shivered. Now, stone doesn't mean on alcohol and drugs. You know that, right? That means a crowd of people surrounded him and threw stones at him until he dropped dead. He was stoned, right? 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, from Gentiles in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Yeah, this guy went through some stuff, didn't he? Apart from such, I mean, that's all the stuff I went through. Apart from that, ex those external things, there is daily the pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Listen closely to verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Ah, oh, see, Paul had an infirmity. People jump on that right away. Wait a minute. Keep everything in context. If you've ever looked up any word, most words have multiple definitions. This one does too. And infirmity, this word, in fact, the New American Standard translates it uh, this way. If I have to boast, I will boast in the things, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Infirmity can be translated sickness or disease, but it also can be translated inability to produce the desired result. Weakness. Lack of strength. What is Paul doing here? He's boasting in the Lord. Psalm 34, my soul will boast in the Lord, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. He listed everything he went through for the sake of preaching the simplicity of Christ. And he's saying, I could not go through that without him. I came through it with strength and glory because he is my strength. We're going to see that as we go on, all right? Notice in that list, he never mentioned once a sickness, all right? So this word infirmity, if translated properly, is the word weakness, the meaning of it. All right? So, by the way, he's the one that wrote Philippians. Right? See, humility is this. Are you ready? Let's define humility. Humility is knowing that apart from God, I can do nothing. But with God, I can do all things. Amen. Who wrote that? Philippians 4.19. Paul, same guy wrote this. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They can stone me. They can beat me. They can shipwreck me. But I'm going to go all the way and fulfill my destiny because of him. He's boasting in the Lord. All right, let's keep going here. This is real humility. Sometimes you don't recognize humility, but this is real humility right here. All right, then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, he continues to tell of the credentials of his apostleship. Right? He continues to boast in the Lord. Let's go to verse 7. Let's get to the heart of this thing. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. What abundance of revelations did he have? Two-thirds of the New Testament, right? Who gave Paul those revelations? God did. Jesus appeared to Paul, didn't he? Right? It started on the road to Damascus, and it continued. He personally appeared to Paul and taught Paul the revelation of the new covenant. I mean, he wrote Romans. It's the Magna Carta of our new covenant with God. That we're justified by faith, that we're righteous by faith. Wow. 
right? He had an abundance of revelations. Why did God give those revelations to him? So that we could have them today, right? So God gives him this abundance of revelations, and then it says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. Is God Satan? No. Is he in a partnership with Satan? Does he need Satan's help to get his will done in the earth? No. No, Satan's an adversary. Him and God have nothing in common. Right? So a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, to buffet me. And boy, he listed the buffetings, didn't he? He buffeted them all right. Lest I be exalted above measure. So who is trying to keep Paul from being exalted, God or Satan? Satan. You remember, is it first or second Peter? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he may exalt you in due time. Do you know God wants to lift you up? Not in a haughty, arrogant way. He wants you to fulfill your purpose. Let's keep reading. Concerning this thing, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, religion says, and God said no to him. Let's read what God really said. All right? And God said to me, do you see N-O anywhere in this answer? Anywhere. Any variation of no. What did God say? My grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, my favor and my power is sufficient. For you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Let's finish, then we're going to go back. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. What are weaknesses? Insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, you got your seatbelts on. You're still awake? We okay? We're doing right? Let's dismantle this thing. All right, let's start with the first phrase back in verse 7. A thorn in the flesh. Okay? Have you ever said that's a real pain in the neck? Right? You might be talking about a person. You might be talking about a situation. It's not a pain literally in the neck. It's a figure of speech. Paul was an expert in the Old Covenant Scriptures. This term thorn was used in various places in the Old Testament, and it was a metaphor describing people who were opposed to God. Let's look at this. Thorn in the flesh. All right? Let's go back to Numbers 33:55. See that Paul's using an Old Testament term to describe what Satan was doing to him. Numbers 33, 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes. Were they literally barbs in their eyes? Come on, God's using figures of speech here. What religion does is takes figures of speech literally, then takes literal things figuratively and gets it all mixed up. There'll be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. It's a figure of speech describing people who are opposed to God under the influence of Satan. Right? There'll be thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land you will live. Wow. Isn't that good? 
So in the context of the scriptures, God uses this phrase to speak of people who are opposing him in his will. Let's look at another example, Joshua 23, 13. So you got to know the scriptures so you can see through these faulty arguments. Joshua 23, 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good land which the Lord your God has given you because they made covenants with these people, right? Instead of doing what God told them to do. Let's look at another one, Judges 2, 3. We're running out of time. We'll look at one more. All right? But they shall be... Now, he was telling, telling his people, don't make covenants with these people. Right? Don't, don't enter into a relationship with them. I want you to take that land. They wouldn't listen to him. He said, they shall be thorns in your side. <laughs> Paul knew the scriptures, didn't he? Right? And their gods shall be a snare to you. So Paul said, it was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Just like they had then, right? There are people who've opposed me, who've opposed the will of God under the influence of this messenger of Satan. They're trying to stop me from preaching the simplicity of Christ. That's the thorn in the flesh. Had nothing to do with the sickness. Nothing. Not even close, all right? He's speaking of the people that opposed him, and just about everywhere he went, he came across opposition, right? the people that opposed him to try and keep him from preaching the simplicity that is in Christ. Hallelujah. Now let's go, let's go on to the next one. Oh, then God's answer to him. God didn't say no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. That word sufficient is powerful. You look it up in the Strong's. It connotes this. Are you ready? My grace is sufficient for you. It connotes the idea of, of the raising of a barrier. A warding off of danger. My grace will be a barrier in your life. Will ward off the danger. That's what sufficient means. All right? And then let's look at the, uh, let's see, the last one here. Here's, here's, the, here's the underlying falsehood in that argument. God was trying to make him humble. God was trying to humble him through sickness. Well, let's just think about what we know from the scriptures here for a moment. Who was trying to keep Paul from being exalted? Satan was, right? Satan was. What does Proverbs 16 and 18 say about pride? Pride comes before the fall. Satan would have loved it if Paul fell, right? So Satan wouldn't want to humble Paul. He'd want to exalt him. He'd want Paul to be conceited and arrogant, wouldn't he? Why would Satan want to humble him if pride comes before the fall? Right? Doesn't make sense. Satan would be cheering on. Come on, Paul, you're the man. You're the man. You can do it. You can do it. You're the man. Tell them about you. You, you go get him, right? He would be trying to inflate Paul's ego, right? Trying to get him into this state of arrogance and pride so he can take him down. God wanted to exalt Paul because God wanted him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. God was for him, not against him. So what is a very powerful passage of Scripture has been turned into a confusing thing that's robbed people of the health that God's provided for them. Hallelujah. God is so good. We're out of time. 
Yeah, there's a whole lot more. We're going we're to have some fun next week. Don't miss next week. It's going to be so good. Just so much you can go through. You can't go through every falsehood in, in, in uh, one Sunday or even 20 Sundays, but we're, we're going to keep learning, growing. But isn't God good? His grace is sufficient for. His grace raises up a barrier. Do you remember in the Old Testament, he says, when, when the enemy comes in, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. That's grace right there. That's my grace is sufficient for you. Hallelujah. So next week, we're going to get into something fun. We're going to get into uh, what it means to be saved. It means being healed. So come ready to be transformed. We're going to look at Jesus lifted up on the cross. All right? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Lord, it's just fun to be changed by you. We're so glad you're not a stuffy, stingy, cranky God. That your perfect love, that joy, fullness of joy is in your presence. Lord, we, we revel in you. We celebrate you. We thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to the truth about who you are. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us when we're reading the scriptures to interpret it through your character, through your revealed will in Christ. Help us, Lord, to shed these, these false teachings and beliefs for the sake of knowing you and experiencing you. In Jesus' name. At Highway Church, we want to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ and experience the abundant life He came to give you. If you'd like to learn more about God's amazing love for you, please visit us at highwaychurch.us. You can email us at info at highwaychurch.us or message us via our Facebook page. Put your trust in Jesus today and taste and see how good He is.